Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever been stopped in their tracks by the molten ore color of a California poppy. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about one of the most important, most foundational ecological concepts out there, because today we're talking with Naomi Fraga about native plants. Now, of course, we're going to talk about things like what native plants are and why they're important, but you're also going to hear about global biodiversity hotspots, endemic plants, tips for not dying in the desert, iconic California plant species, genetic diversity, a wetland inside of a desert, rare plants, including the seven ways to be rare, native plant myths, a plant that gets to be purple because it refuses to do its own photosynthesis, what a cienega is and what they have to do with Los Angeles, and what each of us can do to support biodiversity in our own neighborhoods and beyond. But first, I'm going to read you a recent review that actually kind of knocked the wind out of me when I read it, because one, it was written by Obi Kaufman, outstanding naturalist, artist, and author of the California Field Atlas. Two, it is such a beautiful review. And three, it's the perfect celebration for the last episode of the year. Here it goes. The Golden State Naturalist wins my vote for podcast of the year 2022. It is the podcast California needs and deserves. Michelle Fulner's compelling exploration of California's natural world is adventurous, invested, and respectful, and her vibe is as unique as it is refreshing. In the 18 well-produced and entertaining episodes of the podcast's first year, the throughline of the story being told is indicative of a California in the making that is hopeful, curious, and compassionate. With style and science, equitable representation, and a kind of joyous ease, the Golden State Naturalist is poised to only get bigger as the word spreads. And I, for one, can't wait to tune in for what's next. So, Obi, thank you so much. The vote of confidence means a lot to me. And if you want to catch up on episodes that you've missed or get notified when new episodes come out, make sure you're following Golden State Naturalist wherever you listen to podcasts. The next episode isn't going to come out until January because I'll be focusing on spending time with my family over the holidays. But it'll be worth the wait because that episode is with a guest I've wanted to have on the show since the idea for starting a podcast occurred to me over a year ago. Someone who has earned his reputation for both kindness and excellence. You're going to want to make sure not to miss that one. And you can do that by hitting the plus sign in the top right hand corner of your screen if you're using Apple Podcasts or the follow button on Spotify. You can find me on social media at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. There's also a Facebook page and my website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. But now let's get to the episode. Naomi Fraga has her PhD, master's, and bachelor's degrees in botany. She's the director of conservation programs at the California Botanic Garden, the world's largest botanic garden dedicated to California native plants, where she has worked for over 20 years. Naomi's passion is plant conservation and conserving imperiled plants. Here are some very cool awards she's earned recently for her contributions. The Center for Biological Diversity E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Award 2021, Center for Plant Conservation Star Award, and the 2020 U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Recovery Champion Award. So without further ado, let's hear from Naomi Fraga on Golden State Naturalist. journey to native plants wasn't exactly straightforward. As Naomi tells you her story, I want you to picture where we were sitting. It was a hot summer day at the end of August in Claremont, California, just east of Los Angeles. But temperatures weren't too bad where we were sitting because we were in the shade of some beautiful California oaks. From the bench where we sat, we had a full view of a coast live oak the Botanic Garden has named the Majestic Oak, after its enormous stature and hundreds of years of age. We could see hummingbirds hovering near the tree and squirrels skittering in all directions. I knew I had an interest in biology in general, and I had an interest in environmental conservation from a young age. I first explored the world of marine biology, oh. thinking I was interested in phytoplankton actually, which oh. is a plant connection, but I had some volunteer opportunities and realized that wasn't really gonna work out for me. 
and I was looking for places where I can get any kind of experience and I actually happened upon a botanic garden in Claremont, <laughs> the California Botanic Garden. Mm -hmm. And I started here as a volunteer when I was an undergraduate in college. And it was really working here as a volunteer and then later as an intern that really cemented my beginning. It blossomed <laughs> into a, a, a total love for native plants. Yeah. Yeah. Just all the exposure and being surrounded and seeing the beauty and the diversity, like this place is amazing. We just walked through the tiniest section of yeah. it and it's gorgeous. Well, I think the, the key part was, even though I grew up in uh, Los Angeles County, I'm born and raised in California, I didn't actually have an understanding about California native plants mm -hmm. as a child. I didn't have a lot of access to natural spaces mm -hmm. and I just, I was ignorant. I was just totally, completely ignorant mm -hmm. of them. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who, like Naomi, didn't get much exposure to the natural world as kids. And one indicator of this has actually gotten worse in recent decades, with today's kids aged 8 to 18 spending seven and a half hours per day looking at screens, according to the CDC. I don't say this to shame parents, because I don't know a single parent who wants this and is actively choosing this for their kids. Rather, I think it's a sign of how much support parents need and often aren't getting. A few websites I found claim that kids are only spending between four and seven minutes playing outside each day. Now, I couldn't find the source of those numbers, but I can't imagine they're terribly far off based on the CDC's screen time numbers. And if they are correct, it means that kids aren't getting the chance to personally know the natural world in any kind of deep or meaningful way. And to compound that problem, not all kids get the same amount of access to the natural world. According to research by Conservation Science Partners and the Center for American Progress, 70% of low-income communities across the country live in nature-deprived areas, with communities of color being three times more likely than white communities to live in nature-deprived places. Now, there are often individuals with deep ecological knowledge within these impacted communities, but it's got to be incredibly difficult to pass that knowledge along to younger generations without lots of chances to be out on the land together. I distinctly remember my great-grandfather teaching me about buckeye trees when I was a small kid. Knowledge that I would have missed out on without access to a place to see those plants in action. Thankfully, there are a lot of great organizations looking to tackle some of those inequities. I'll post a link to a list of some of them in the show notes in case you want to check them out. Also, I want to do a whole episode on kids in nature. Wouldn't that be cool? But let's get back to Naomi's path to the botanic garden and native plants. And it was through the garden that I understood that there are these plants that are indigenous to this land that survive and thrive without irrigation, which seems <laughs> in Southern California, it's like, wow. It doesn't seem possible. <laughs> yeah, these plants are tough. And that they're uniquely adapted to this environment and that they are diverse. There's thousands of them. Yeah, actually, that was one of my questions. <laughs> like, do you know how many species there are of California native plants? Yeah, California native plants, there's over about 6,500 kinds of native plants native to the state. So that's more than any other state. I was going to say, yeah, like how does that compare? Are, yeah. are other states like significantly less than that or? or? Yeah, it's more than Texas. It's more than Alaska, which yeah. are larger than California. And the California Floristic Province, which doesn't encompass the whole state of California, mm -hmm. you know, is a global biodiversity hotspot. And that's mm -hmm. in part due to this incredible diversity of native plants. Mm -hmm. And we not only have over 6,500 kinds of native plants, a significant proportion of those, about a third of those, only occur in California and nowhere wow. else in the world. So it's really exceptional, actually. If you're not familiar, a global biodiversity hotspot must have at least 1,500 vascular plants that are found nowhere else on the planet. And it must have only 30% or less of its original natural vegetation remaining. There are 36 recognized biodiversity hotspots on the planet, including the California Floristic Province, which includes most of the state of California and extends out beyond the coast into the Pacific Ocean and then also dips down into Baja California in Mexico. And the incredible diversity of plants found here in the California Floristic Province supports diversity of more species than just plants. Yeah, you know, think about all the the butterfly plant relationships that are out there and all these rare butterflies that we have that love, you know, specific species of wild buckwheat or, <laughs> you know, just that these plants provide opportunities for, you know, life to just be bountiful. Right, right. And 
we're kind of digging into this conversation, but I'm kind of thinking maybe some of my listeners won't know a lot of native plant type terms. So can you help just maybe give an overview of like, what is a native plant? What is endemic? What is, mm-hmm. what is introduced? What is invasive? Like just kind of what some of those terms mean. Right. So a native plants, so the definition that we use in California, what we consider to be a native plant are um, any species of plant that are thought to have occurred here prior to European colonization or mm-hmm. settlement. And so we think that the majority of those, you know, that they essentially evolved here and mm-hmm. diversified here. So this is, they are uniquely adapted to this location. Non-native plants or introduced plants, sometimes people lump all these terms, um, introduced, non-native, invasive, all under one thing, but they actually to some degree mean different things. Mm. I tend to use the word non-native for plants that have been introduced and that are naturalizing so to say Mm. that they can escape the cultivated environment and persist without the aid of humans Mm -hmm. and they might propagate themselves out in nature so those are naturalized non-native plants that aren't necessarily invasive Mm. but if they crowd out other plants and rapidly expand and really just are are hard to control, then that refers to invasiveness. Mm -hmm. And so to some degree, some people might refer to native plants as having an invasive nature because native plants sometimes get carried away too (laughs) and might kind of, you know, colonize and grow rapidly in an area. So yeah, all those terms can be sort of teased apart and there's overlapping elements to them. But yeah, sure. That makes sense. And then, I mean, even thinking about native plants like we have so many different ecosystems here so it's like maybe it's native to this particular Mm. type of ecosystem so would that be called like locally native or is that what is is there a more specific term for that we oftentimes use the word endemic to describe plants that are restricted to a particular region okay so everything's endemic to somewhere Mm -hmm. humans are endemic to planet earth (laughs) (laughs) but we oftentimes use the term endemic to describe a restricted range and that could mean a particular soil type so something might only occur on a limestone type soil so we might say it's a limestone endemic because it only occurs on limestone so even if there's limestone in southern california and northern california it's still limestone endemic even if there's many separate regions in between yeah because it's saying that oh it occurs on this specific soil type Mm -hmm. and then you can say oh this plant is endemic to the sierra nevada Mm -hmm. and so that's to say that its range is restricted to the sierra nevada range Mm -hmm. and um, you don't find it elsewhere right that makes sense and you were saying we have a ton of endemic species here in california too right Yeah, so I was referring to California endemics, Mm -hmm. which is to say they only occur in California and not in other states. Okay, perfect. Are there plants that people think of in association with California that you're like, no, it's not a native plant, like that's a a misconception? Definitely the palm trees Mm -hmm. of Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) The primary palm trees that grow in Los Angeles are a relative of our native palm tree. Okay. So the palm trees you saw in the garden are the California fan palm, Washingtonia filifera, and that is our only native palm tree Mm. to the state. And they grow in a very limited area. They are endemic to the Mojave Desert. Oh. And they live in uh, in and around Palm Springs. Um, There's some palm oases in Joshua Tree, Anza Borrego State Park. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the main areas where you'd see palm oases. And so all of the palm trees of Los Angeles are not native Uh (laughs) to Los Angeles. Even the native species isn't native to that site. But it's mostly the Mexican fan palm, I would say, is one of the main palm trees you see. And also um, date palms are also pretty big. So if you're wondering how a non-native plant became so synonymous with a place it is not even from, LAist.com has a whole page devoted to this history and how the palms were planted extensively in Los Angeles because they symbolized glamour, luxury, and wealth in exotic desert locales. I'll link the article in the show notes in case you want to read the whole thing, but the final sentence sums it up really well. The city is one giant backlot, and the palm tree its most convincing prop. So I think a lot of times people, they don't think necessarily about our native plants first, but you know, California is lucky in that some of our native plants really are iconic Mm. and, and do attract people from all over the world to come and see 
our native plants. So the Joshua tree is so famous. The coast redwoods, the giant sequoias, the bristlecone pine, those are all very famous California plants that all are native and special. So I'm also appreciative of that. Yeah, that's true. We have those iconic species. I think the California poppy too. Yes. Yeah. That's super recognizable. I think, I don't know. I'm born and raised in California too. So I think everyone would recognize it, but I don't know if that's true. There's already a Golden State Naturalist episode about giant sequoias, and there's some discussion of Joshua trees in the conglomerate Mesa episode, but bristlecone pines, coast redwoods, and California poppies are all episodes I literally daydream about making. Why should people care about native plants? (laughs) I get this question far too often, I think. (laughs) I mean, I care about native plants, but... Why should somebody who maybe doesn't know or is just like, I want to plant things in my yard, right? Like, why should Mm -hmm. they care about native plants? I think that native plants are definitely undervalued and people don't necessarily understand why they should care right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I would say I would have fallen into that camp when I was growing up because I just didn't know about them. So how Mm -hmm. can you know you should care about something you don't even know about? But once I got to learn about native plants, I understood how they are the support system for all eco terrestrial ecosystems Mm. everywhere (laughs) every plant's native to somewhere Mm. and it's the native plants that provide us with everything we need to live they provide not only wildlife but they provide humans with shelter with medicine Mm. with food with oxygen they are the building blocks of terrestrial ecosystems and so without native plants we don't really have you know, they're, they're far much more than a scenic backdrop. They mm-hmm. are essential elements of the environment. And I think that thinking about incorporating native plants or bringing native plants back to urban environments where we may have displaced them with plants from elsewhere is really beneficial because these are plants that don't really require a lot of additional inputs. They don't require fertilizers or water, less additional water. Mm-hmm. So they can, because they, they have already existed here and mm-hmm. adapted to this climate. I guess I just want to say that, so I described that these native plants have a lot of utility mm-hmm. to humans, which that's all very true. They're, you know, essential. But aside from their essential and utilitarian nature, I think that uh, native plants just by virtue of The existence of 6,500 kinds of plants in California that have evolved here, I think is just, just thinking about that concept is the most magnificent thing. That there are so many and there's so much to learn from them, about them. And they have lived their lives here, adapted to this climate. They, 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 I think there are ways we can learn from native plants on how to improve and live our best life mm-hmm. in California by looking to the native plants and how they just tell us so much about the environment yeah. and what is possible in the environment and what the limitations are and what the possibilities are. And yeah, so I mean, they're just extraordinary. Of course, they're important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That remind what you were just saying reminds me of like Robin Wall Kimmerer. If you're not familiar, Robin Wall Kimmerer is both a botanist and a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and she draws on both her scientific training and traditional ways of knowing to understand life all around us. Her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is probably the most influential single book relating it all to ecology or the outdoors that I've ever read. So highly recommend that. You know, and she's drawing on a much broader Mm -hmm. tradition, right? Like indigenous knowledge about plants being teachers. And I really love that because it's like, well, yeah, look at who's been doing this the longest, right? Like plants have been doing this the longest and we can we can adapt and we can learn from them as well, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Plus, who doesn't want to see cool butterflies in their yard? Exactly. I want to see butterflies. Butterflies and hummingbirds. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. So we've got all these amazing, beautiful native and endemic plants. Like what are some of the things that are threatening them? Well, the most obvious thing that threatens native plants that has been occurring for a couple of centuries is um, just development, Mm -hmm. um, modification of habitat. So I grew up, I've grown up in Los Angeles County, lived here all my life, and it was already an urban megalopolis by the time (laughs) I was a little bean sprout of myself. (laughs) But 
So I could think prior to the development of Los Angeles, there was, there was extinction that happened sure. in the development of Los Angeles. We know that. We know that there was a plant called the Los Angeles Sunflower that lived in Cienegas in and around Los Angeles. You know, there's La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles. Isn't, doesn't just have that name for fun. You know, mm. there were springs there. So Cienega means swamp in Spanish. And believe it or not, that's exactly what was once on La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles. And LA used to be a much wetter place in general before the LA River was channelized or modified and straightened to prevent flooding. Now, if you change the amount of water in a place, you of course change the kinds of plants that can grow and thrive there. And in Los Angeles, a lot of that key habitat is gone now, meaning that people are more likely to associate LA with those non-native palm trees we talked about than lush wetlands ringing with the chorus of frog song. And the city no longer supports habitat for certain species. They've been displaced or have gone totally extinct. And so this rapid development, it actually, you know, happen rapidly. First, oftentimes the way it happens in succession of, you know, modify the landscape for agricultural lands. Agricultural lands then become urbanized and developed, but that all has displaced native species. Mm -hmm. and, and so that to this day remains probably the most significant threat mm -hmm. to native plants, but we have new and emerging threats. And so we have the threat of climate change, which mm -hmm. is incredible and severe and acute, and it's happening now. And we're mm -hmm. seeing the effects of that before our eyes, you can go out into landscapes and see a large die-off of conifer trees. Mm. Um, you can see impacts to Joshua trees where there's like herbivory happening because animals don't have enough to eat. Mm. So there's a multitude of threats and unfortunately 99.99% of those are anthropogenic mm -hmm. in nature. That's a, it's a hard thing because humans can be a friend, but we can also be a foe. And I think it'd be great if we can learn from lessons of the past mm -hmm. to um, be better inhabitants of our region and to, to avoid, <laughs> to diminish those threats to the native plants. It's time for a quick break. And I know you just heard the bad news about human impacts on native plants, but I'm not going to leave you with the sad stuff for long. After the break, Naomi will get into things each of us can do to support native plants and local biodiversity. Also rare plants and desert springs, like water bubbling up from the ground in the Mojave Desert, for real. So stick around and we'll be back soon. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hi, welcome back. Let's get into some good news from Naomi. There's a lot of different ways people can help native plants. One is I really think that having a garden that incorporates California native plants does some really tangible things to help native plants. Mm. One is your learning about native plants by being a gardener with native plants sure. and you're growing your love and appreciation for them. And by doing that, you're, I think it extends our community of stewards mm -hmm. of California native plants. And we could always use more advocates, more people who are champions of California native plants. So I think gardening with native plants is, is one way to be their champion. And it also, you know, allows plants to be put back 
into a landscape that's been devoid of native mm -hmm. plants. So it's, it's bringing them back to their original home. I want to take a second here to mention the work of Doug Tallamy, an entomologist at the University of Delaware who has extensively studied the way native plants increase biodiversity. He started this concept called the Homegrown National Park. The idea is that we can all work together to collectively create interconnected habitat for a multitude of species that we've displaced with things like development and agriculture. And we can accomplish this by growing native plants right in our own yards like Naomi is talking about here. You can see the progress of this project broken down by state if you go to map.homegrownnationalpark.org. I just did this, and folks, California is in 41st place. I just added the native planting in my yard, which is tiny at this point, but I'm working on it, and I'm only the 592nd Californian to get on the map. And there are almost 40 million of us. Pennsylvania has over a thousand people on the map, and they only have 13 million people total. I'm sure there are lots more native plantings here in California that just aren't accounted for on the map, but I also have a deeply competitive streak that is not okay with this. So if you have native plants in your yard and you add yourself to the map, make sure to tag me in a post or a story on Instagram and I'll reshare it in my story. And we can work together to build awareness of native plants. I'd also love to see photos of your native plants, so it would be cool if you added those to your post too. And if you don't have any native plants yet, you can still plant some this season. Just don't wait until the dry season because Naomi will talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, but they do better getting established when it's rainy. And if you miss your window this year, that's okay. You can use this time to start doing research on what you want to put in the ground and where to find those plants. There's actually going to be an episode this spring about growing native plants from seed that will help you prepare for your plantings next fall. Anyway, plant native if you can, add yourself to the Homegrown National Parks map, and tag me in your native planting posts. I want to see them. So I think that's a very tangible way to help native plants. And the other is, I think, educating yourself, learning, and, and being able to support institutions that do work on native plants. There, there's a lot of nonprofits all across the state all working to support and conserve California native plants. And so I think the more everyday people grow and love them, they're gonna want to support those initiatives, mm -hmm. so. Do you have like a top two or three that you would throw out there that if people well, are interested? Aside from the California Botanic Obviously, Garden. <laughs> that is the one where you should go first. Yeah, I mean, the California Native Plant Society is a really great institution and it's a very good way to get an introduction to native plants because mm -hmm. there's chapters all across the state. And so you can go to your local chapter and go to a meeting and see presentations oh. on native plants. You can go on plant walks. Cool. And I think just, connecting with plants and nature just builds the community of people who are supporting nature so right and the more people are involved the more they can teach other people exactly and it sort of can spread that way right one more plug for learning the native plants in your area is that it puts you in a community not only with other people who care about this but with other species it puts you in a community that is beyond the human realm. Every time I go out into an oak woodland or a chaparral ecosystem and I see some plants that I know and I recognize, I feel like I've just seen a friend that I maybe haven't seen recently. And it makes me feel so much less alone in the world. What are maybe some myths or misconceptions about native plants that you would love to clear up or something you wish everyone knew about native plants? Yeah, I think one thing is when people think of native plant gardens and they think, oh, a drought tolerant garden, and they think it's all cactus. Oh. And then not to say I love cactus mm -hmm. and I love succulents, but I think people think of plants that are drought adapted as being sort of, they put them in one box and just think of them as sort of one kind of thing. Either they're all cactus sure. or they're all brown. Right. or something like this but there's just such an incredible diversity to the form you know we have teeny tiny little mosses and big giant mm -hmm. redwoods and big lilies and orchids and we actually have a lot of plants that actually are very water loving mm -hmm. um, so they're not necessarily all sort of dry scrubby plants we do have a lot of those and they're great <laughs> but I think that people don't appreciate the incredible diversity about plants I think the other thing that people struggle to recognize when they think about endangerment of biodiversity, they don't think about plants mm. and they don't think about how plants could be threatened and endangered. They think of the polar bear or the grizzly bear or the wolf. Pandas. Um, pandas, exactly. 
and they don't necessarily think that, you know, a flower that is from Bakersfield could be endangered, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And they probably think of Bakersfield as being sort of brown and drab and dry because it's been deprived of its native exactly. plants, right? It has. And yeah, the Great Central Valley was an incredible lush wetland and we sucked all the water dry through agriculture. It's, it's really had tremendous change and there are many species of rare and threatened plants that occur in and around the Central Valley. And like Bakersfield is an example of an area that has lots of rare plants. Really? Yeah. That's not what most people think of when they think no, of Bakersfield. No, they don't. But <laughs> Which is a shame. It's a shame. It that is, is a really shame. That is really too bad. I was driving down five to mm-hmm. come here and you know, if you've driven on five, you understand what that experience is yes. like. It's pretty boring. But I was thinking about it while I was driving. I was like, I actually did an interview with somebody on the natural history of the center of Central Valley. So that's oh. going to be coming out. I don't know whether it's going to be before or after this episode uh-huh. yet. But I was just imagining what that experience of driving through the Central Valley would have been like 300 years ago, yeah. you know, or so. And how maybe I would have been on like a causeway rather than like a, <laughs> a freeway because you'd have to be yeah. off of that moist, moist ground. Yeah totally radically different experience. That episode is not out yet. It will be out later this season and keep an eye out for it because it is mind-blowing how different the Central Valley is today from what it was like a few hundred years ago. Okay, I had an interesting listener question. This question is from the truly delightful listener, B. And she was wondering that it seems like there's kind of a growing awareness of native plants. Have you seen or noticed like an uptick in that? And, you know, also maybe the availability, because that can be a challenge when people are trying to grow native plants, Mm -hmm. like the local availability of native plants for them. Yeah, I have seen an increase in that. I think, like I said, when I was growing up, I was totally unaware Mm -hmm. of native plants. There were certainly zero native plant gardens in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was 100% lawn. I installed a native plant garden in my mom's yard my parents yard they were the first ones on the block you go but it has it's it's not it wasn't rapid fire spread Mm -hmm. but it is propagating around the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and so i'm seeing a lot more native gardens in you know southern california where i've born and raised and i think that's an indication of growing interest in native plants I definitely see a lot of, there's a definitely, through social media, a young community out there who are just really interested in learning about native plants and sharing photos of plants, Mm -hmm. you know, especially Instagram. I'm just flooded with, I think my Instagram feed is probably 90% people younger than me of people just sharing native plant photos. And that just brings me so much joy. That's fantastic. I wish I, you know, when I was learning about native plants, there weren't, I didn't run into a lot of peers. I was mostly hanging out with a bunch of old dudes who would like pontificate (laughs) about native plants. And gosh, to have had a community of peers my age and people just geeking out about native plants would have been so huge for me. And so I appreciate that aspect of social media and that it can bring native plant lovers together. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons I'm glad I didn't have social media when I yeah, was like exactly. a teenager, but that's one that would have been really cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the stuff I put like in my journal, I'm like, oh, thank <laughs> God. It was all about boys. I really, really liked boys and they did not know I existed. Is there anything that you think uh, uh, maybe a species or like a few species that like every California should know about, or is it too regional? Like, should you be looking mm-hmm. more at your specific region? It is actually highly regional. Mm-hmm. There are a few plants that are pretty widespread throughout California that I think most Californians can know about. I mean, everyone should know just straight up our state flowers, mm-hmm. California poppy. I think most people do know that, so that's a good thing. And it occurs up and down the state desert, coast, Mm. you know, all different sorts of habitat. Uh, The California buckwheat is one of my favorites. It is very widespread throughout California. There's many subspecies, but it is just a favorite of pollinators. It's very tough and robust. And I mean, it'll grow in vacant lots. It grows in intact habitat. I love it. It's a beast. It's great. That's fantastic. And for people maybe who are starting out and need something resilient. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the thing. When people are starting out, the problem they most often have, at least in Southern California, is that they often give their native plants too much water. Oh. 
They're used and, to those lawns and everything, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the California buckwheat would not like too much water. So you, it is good for the gardener who is more prone to neglect. <laughs> Which is me. That's me too. So. Uh, I'm, this is very reassuring. <laughs> yeah. So it's a winner. I'm going to throw out, I'm going to have, have a little bias here because I study a group of plants called monkey flowers. And the shrubby monkey flower grows in many parts throughout the state. And I think that is a very good introduction plant from any native plant gardener. Uh -huh. It's a great plant. They make hybrids and they get all kinds of crazy colors, but just the straight species, the native ones are really beautiful. And I think everyone loves a monkey flower. Yeah, I have sticky monkey flowers in yeah. my yard, but like I definitely planted them at the wrong time of year and they're like struggling right now. Uh -huh. So are there any tips that you would give people to like, when they should plant, where, how, I mean, I know that's very specific to a species, but. Yeah, I mean, the general rule is, so because California is wholly experiencing a Mediterranean climate, mm -hmm. which means we get our rain in the winter and we have a prolonged drought in the summer, the best time to plant native plants is with the rainy season. Mm -hmm. And so you, it's cool, it's wet, you get the plants established. Mm -hmm. So once it becomes dry and hot, they're more likely to have established themselves and be able to kind of withstand that summer. Mm -hmm. Some plants might need to be nursed along that first year of planting. Mm -hmm. But after that, hopefully, if they're well established, they should be good to go. I'm a very harsh gardener in that I just, I'm like, if you require additional water, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you must live with what Mother Nature gives us. Uh -huh. But I definitely make it a point. I only, I never plant in the summer because they would just all die right. if I did that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Great. It's a solid tip. And I kind of knew that when I planted these, but I was like, I have them. I'm going to put them in the ground. Do you recommend like cowscape if people are trying to figure out or is there are there any other tools that you would recommend if people are trying to figure out what they should plant in their area? Yeah, I think that's also that is a good tool. There's a website called Calflora that's more mm -hmm. for uh, plants in natural areas. Okay. Um, but I think if you learn about plants and where they grow naturally and when they flower and what their natural life cycle is, so if you learn about the plant in general, you're more likely to be more successful with them in the garden. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So that's Calscape and Calflora if you live in California. But what if you don't live in California? Ecosystemgardening.com says that native plant societies are located in every state across the U.S. and across Canada. And that website actually has links to all of those native plant societies. So I will pop that into the show notes and you can find native plants that are local to you anywhere in North America. Okay, your specialty is more in rare plants. We've been talking really generally about native plants, some of which are rare and some of which really are not. So what kind of drew you into the rare plant side of things? I think it was because I had that interest in environmental conservation when I was, you know, a biology major, didn't know what I was going to do, came to this garden, started focusing on native plants. And then I very early on in my time here got to participate in a rare plant survey. Mm. And it was this plant called Aphylon valida, or some people might say Aphylon valida. It's a plant called a broom rape. It's holoparasitic, so they don't do any of their own photosynthesis. Oh. They, they are root parasites, so they attach to the root of another plant, another species, and take the sh their sugar and nutrients that so way. So do they have green leaves or no? No, this plant is purple, <laughs> and it looks like little purple sticks sticking out of the ground. If a plant isn't doing its own photosynthesis, it doesn't need chlorophyll, which is what makes a plant green, so it can do fancy things like be purple. And if the term holoparasitic is new for you, no worries. It relates to this idea. I just looked it up, and Merriam-Webster tells me it's a plant that obtains all of its energy and water from a host plant. But there's a different plant parasite, a green one, that's top of mind at this time of year, and that's mistletoe. And mistletoe, I'm sure you've noticed, is green because it's not holoparasitic. Rather, it's what's called hemiparasitic, meaning that it gets some but not all of its resources from a host plant. So it still needs to photosynthesize on its own. Mistletoe can be pretty easy to spot in deciduous trees at this time of year because you'll see this tree that's lost all of its leaves, but there's still this big round ball of little green leaves attached to an otherwise bare branch. So keep an eye out for that in the next couple of weeks. Very festive. But I feel obligated to tell you that it's also toxic, so be careful with it. 
but back to the holoparasitic broom rape. And I just was fascinated. This plant is, has a very restricted distribution. It's rare. We're monitoring it to track its status and understand what the threats are and how the population is doing. And it just blew my mind that I'm like, well, here's this native plant and it's holoparasitic and it's rare and I get to come out and count it. <laughs> and so I think I quickly started to make the connection that one way to work towards environmental conservation would be to work in biodiversity conservation mm. and ensure that the rarest plants are protected mm. because they're the most vulnerable. So I've really dedicated a lot of my time, my botanical uh, knowledge and you know my life force towards ensuring that the rarest plants have protections mm -hmm. um, that we can ensure that they don't go extinct because they're really prone or vulnerable to extinction because they're already just naturally many in California we have a lot of species that are naturally very rare and then on top of that you overlay on that this element of human interaction that's possibly detrimental to those populations and that just further impacts the species and makes them very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that work that you do, like, what does that look like in a practical sense? Like, what does your kind of day-to-day look like? It involves a certain amount of field work, going out there, looking at the plants, checking on their status. I do a lot of work to develop research projects so that we can gather the data that's needed to understand what the factors are that might be endangering these plants. And is that where you're like mentoring graduate students and things like that? I do, yeah. A lot of the students that are interested in working with me are interested in conservation. Cool. And so they're interested in rare plant work as well. And so I work with students to help them develop their research projects so that it has a conservation impact. So yeah, so I work with graduate students. I also work with a, a broad diversity of staff. One of our major programs here that we do for rare plant conservation is collecting seeds of rare plants, and then we store them in our seed bank. Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of like an insurance policy where if something were to happen to that population in the wild, we have representation. We have actual individuals from that population. They're seeds, yeah. but they are, you know, the potential future living plants. So we have those stored away in our seed bank, it's sort of like a Noah's Ark of California plant diversity where we can safeguard populations offsite. Wow. If you're interested in the idea of a seed bank, I highly recommend Googling the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is located inside a mountain on a Norwegian island that also happens to be the farthest north you can fly on a regularly scheduled flight because they need to keep the seeds freezing cold to prolong their viability. The idea behind the vault is to preserve crop diversity in case of a catastrophe, so it's designed to withstand things like nuclear blasts. Wild. Now, this is probably not where California's native seeds are being stored because they're not typically food crops, but it does shed light on the importance of maintaining these genetic libraries. If a plant species disappears from the land, seed banks might be our only way to bring them back. And even if these plants aren't all food plants for humans, they are food for all manner of invertebrate and vertebrate animals, and our complex native food webs depend on them. So I was so glad to hear that the Botanic Garden is collecting these seeds and keeping them safe. Do you know how many species you've got in seeds in there? Yeah, we have over 2,000 different species. Nice. So that's about a third of the California flora. So we have a ways to go, but we're but making good progress. some of it's progress. from far away from here, right? Some of it's like from way northern California. We do. So. We have seed collections from the cool. whole state, all wow. across the state. And we also have a lot of seed collections from the northwestern portion of Baja California, which includes the California floristic province. Oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have to like go into Mexico sometimes to get some yeah, we have um, we have had staff do expeditions there. I personally, I've done a little bit of field uh -huh. work in Mexico. Most of my field work is in California, but yeah, we do collaborate and work across the border. That's really cool. You can almost hear my mental wheels turning trying to figure out how to make a series of episodes in Baja, California. Do you have any projects that you're working on right now with oh, any gosh. of these rare plants that you want to talk about or maybe specific yeah. rare plants that you're really excited about? There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to narrow down. Yeah, we have a lot of projects. One of the projects, I'm actually just finishing it up right now. I've been doing a lot of work on rare plants of this area of the Mojave Desert called the Amargosa River Basin. Mm. It's a really unique part of the state where it includes 
the lowest, hottest, driest place in North America, which is Badwater Basin in Death Valley. So that is the terminus of this river called the Amargosa River. Mm -hmm. It ends up in Death Valley. But across this river's length are all these seeps and springs from this vast groundwater aquifer that provide wetlands in the desert. So like very lush wet habitat what these springs are gushing at like hundreds or thousands of gallons per minute just like tons of water that is wild so i just have to wrap my head around this for a second so it's considered a desert because it doesn't get rainfall yet there is water because it's coming from groundwater exactly exactly and these areas where groundwater comes to the surface supports unique biodiversity, Mm -hmm. plants that are restricted to those habitats, these alkali wetlands. So the wetlands are, um, they're highly saline and alkaline because you have all this water, but all that water's constantly evaporating, leaving behind all these minerals. I found a page from the National Park Service about springs and seeps in Death Valley. And I'm not sure if the page is focusing on the exact region Naomi's talking about because Death Valley is massive, but it sounds similar because these wetlands are home to an endemic fish species called the Salt Creek pupfish that have the incredible ability to live in water that is two and a half times saltier than seawater. And some of them can live short periods in water equal to a temperature of 107 degrees Fahrenheit. The NPS page has a ton more great information on these fish and on the springs in the Mojave Desert, including a great video that's only like six minutes long. So I'll link it in the show notes in case you want to check that out. So you get like these salt encrusted flats that the soil itself is saturated, but it just looks like a field of salt. And on the salt crest is growing this little succulent plant called the Amargosinida wort. And Amargosinida wort only lives you know, in like (laughs) this very specific area. The Amargosa niterwort is a beautiful plant. It's a succulent, but if you look at it from the side when it's not in bloom, to me, it almost looks like a collection of very tight braids coming out of the salt crust. When it's blooming, it has very cute little pink flowers all over it. And so the Amargosa niterwort and I have a close relationship. I visit it often Mm -hmm. and have done a lot of research. And so I'm completing, you know, bringing all this data together that I've been gathering for the past several years to put into this giant report. But a lot of what the report will say is sort of what needs to continue to happen or what are the next steps. So the work is never really done. It's not like you can wrap it up and say, I've done this work on this rare plant and... And now it's good. <laughs> now it's good. It's, it's a constant, it's constant work. And also just being vigilant, just watching out for the plants and making sure that they um, have everything they need for mm-hmm. their survival. They're always vulnerable. There's never a time that they're not. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why also part of my work is educating students because one day I won't be able to do this work. Right. And so I really, we really need the next generation of people coming up to be stewards of the night award and other rare plants. Wow, that's really cool. And so you're going out there this weekend. Is that one of the things you're going to go see? I don't know if we'll get to see the night award this weekend. I'm going to the desert this weekend. I'm looking for another plant called the Tacopa Birdspeak. Ooh, what's that which, one? So the night award is listed under the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. The Tacopa Birdspeak is almost as rare as the night award, but it doesn't have any federal protections. Oh. So the night award's legally protected. The Tacopa bird's beak is not legally protected, but just as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The Tacopa bird's beak only has four photos on Calflora, but it looks like the leaves on it are sort of small, pointy, and spread out along the plant. The leaves remind me a little bit of rosemary leaves, but like if rosemary leaves were more spread out and sort of a gray-green color bordered with purple. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do is to try to relocate it at a spring in Death Valley National Park, and it hasn't been seen at the spring since around 1950. And I've been to all these other locations for the Tacoba Birdspeak, but I just haven't made it down to this location at the right time to try to relocate it. So are you bringing seed? Are you bringing plants? Like, how does that work? I'm just wanting to verify that it's there. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just an initial survey, Uh just to kind of, this is the time, it's... (laughs) 
August and it's hot. Yeah. But this is the time of year when that plant is in bloom. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these wetland plants in this very hot, dry place bloom in the summer months. And so I'm out there in July. I'm out there in oh. August. What <laughs> precautions do you have to take? Do you wear like the biggest hat imaginable? Yeah. Is it like the size of an umbrella? <laughs> Uh, I actually, a lot of it is early morning workouts. That's smart. So smart. getting yeah. out to the site before the sun comes up when dawn breaks. For one, you get to see an incredible sunrise. Yeah. So that has its perks. But it depends on the time of year. Sometimes the overnight lows are as high as 88. So it never gets cooler oh. than 88. And so you're starting the day at 88 degrees. Oh. <laughs> and that's hot if you're out in it, you know. Yeah. So you, you just kind of hope for a breeze. No kidding. <laughs> Do you slather sunscreen? Like, is it just like a sunscreen bath? Sunscreen you bath. Go out? Big brimmed hat, yeah. sun shirt. Smart. Um, just all the sun protection you can afford. Gallons of water. <laughs> oh, yeah. We always have a five-gallon igloo of water, you know, with the, filled with ice. Good. And so that we could refill as needed. Oh. You never, that's one of the things that we, I take a lot of interns out yeah. to do field work in the summertime. And I say, we never drive off into the desert without sufficient water. Because <laughs> your car might break down something you need to have five gallons of water in your car. <laughs> right. And some of these areas, you're not going to see other people who exactly. can help you. Yeah. Terrifying. How does a plant get the status or the definition of being rare? What defines a rare plant? Well, there are actually many definitions that can be used to define rare plants. Um, some of them might be legal and others might be more based on biology. Mm. So there was this really important paper that was written in the 1980s by a woman named Deborah Rabinowitz, and she wrote about the seven forms of rarity where mm. she described how plants can be rare in all these different ways. So there's all these different combinations or permutations of plant characteristics, like their habitat, what their distribution, that take into account abundance, distribution, and habitat specificity. So the rarest kind of rare plant to be would be that you have a very narrow distribution, you have very specific habitat requirements, and your population size is small. So all those things together mean you're very rare and you're very vulnerable. You can also be a rare plant if you have a very wide distribution but you're also, your habitat is specific mm -hmm. and your population sizes are small. Mm -hmm. See, so you can look at those different permutations and kind of like there's certain, there's seven different ways to be rare. Wow. And sort of the one way to not be rare would be your have abundant populations, your populations are fairly large, you're not very specific about your habitat and your distribution is very broad. So that would be like being a generalist species rather than yes, a specialist. Exactly. Okay. While you were talking, it just occurred to me, you probably have to worry about the, the genes of the plants, right? Like, do you worry about genetic diversity in these tiny populations? We do. And, and that's one of the threats or one of the reasons why some rare plant populations are very vulnerable mm -hmm. is because if they have small populations, then that could impact sort of the ability of those plants to adapt in the future if they have low genetic diversity. Mm. And so that's one of the major considerations we think about when we're doing our seed banking, because seed banking is a, can also be thought of as gene banking, because mm, we're sure. banking genetically diverse individuals. Mm. And so we want to make sure that we're capturing the genetic diversity in the population. So we have all these sampling protocols and methods to make sure that we maximize sampling broad genetic diversity and we're not just finding the plants that are easiest to get to and just sampling a few from a uh -huh. pocket of the population. That makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. You should not marry your cousin. You know? exactly. <laughs> Don't do it. Not even once. Yeah. How many rare plants would you say we have in California? I guess there's a lot of definitions, right? But There's a lot of definitions, but the main thing we use to categorize rare plants in California is we actually have an evaluation system oh. and a ranking system. Mm. And it's maintained by the California Native Plant Society. They have an inventory of rare plants. And to get to be a rare plant in the inventory, those plants go through a thorough evaluation and there's a discussion or sort of a voting mechanism that experts review the evaluation and then they make a determination that, yes, that is the appropriate ranking for the plant. So there's a whole process. And there's about 2,300 rare plants. 2,300? Yeah. Out of 6,500. 6, so that's a huge proportion. It's a lot. It's a lot. My goodness, I would not have guessed that. Yeah. 
the California Native Plant Society has a page that has the inventory of rare plants and just the explanation of how the inventory works and all of the California rare plant ranks described. So I'll put that in the show notes. Do you have a favorite? Ooh, maybe that's not a fair question. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, well, it depends on the day and the time. But I'm going to say one of my favorite rare plants would be the Kelso Creek monkey flower. Kelso Creek monkey flower. Because it's one of the first plant, rare plants I worked with in sort of a rigorous way where I wrote a conservation plan for it. I did surveys and monitoring mm. and seed banking. And the plant's not in a better place than when I first started. It's not where I want it to be, but I'm still working hard mm. for that plant and hope that the work that I've done can provide it more protections in mm -hmm. the future. But it's it's very small. It's about mm, a couple inches tall. Mm. And the dominating feature of the plant is its amazing flower, which it's like mostly flower. Its little vegetative body is puny. <laughs> it's like mostly flower. And it has the top flower lobes are maroon in color and the bottom is yellow. So it has two colors in the flower. Cool. And it's just striking. Like I've had so many people contact me and they're like, Naomi, I need to see the Kelso Creek monkey flower this year. <laughs> is it coming up? When can I find it? Where can I find it? And and it has a fan club for sure. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. For sure. That sounds beautiful. It's It's an amazing plant. Last question is, what about doing this work or getting out into the field or any of that just still blows your mind or takes your breath away? I mean, sometimes it's just the simplest thing. I think for me, just there's sometimes it's, you know, with climate change and seeing landscape scale change happening, it could be pretty demoralizing. But when I go outside and get in the landscape and seeing the bounty and the beauty of nature mm. in California, just the sheer existence of biodiversity and all the different forms it takes just blows my mind every time. If I just think about, you know, like, <laughs> like the tiniest little desert moss that can totally desiccate in the summer and then rebound when it gets just a small burst of rain oh. and photo take that that opportunity to photosynthesize like gosh that's it's like magic you know but it's not it's biology right uh, but it's so amazing and and plants have faced through time harsh drought difficult conditions and they persevere every time and i think they have so much strength and it's just, you know, learning from plants again that they show us how to be resilient. And, and so, they, yeah, they amaze me with how resilient they are. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, Naomi, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I want to come and sit here every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming out. Yeah, absolutely. I love what Naomi is saying here because we have so much left to learn, not only about native plants, but also from them. And when we follow her lead and get out onto the land, slow down and look closely, all of this beauty and insight starts to open itself up to us. I'm so grateful to Naomi for taking time in the middle of her incredibly busy schedule to speak with me and show me the botanic garden. I'm also thankful to the California Botanic Garden for welcoming me so warmly. If you want to support the work they're doing, you can go to calbg.org and it's really easy to make a donation right there on the website. And if you live in Claremont or any of the surrounding areas, including Los Angeles, there are so many great events at the Botanic Garden for you to check out. I'm actually a little bit jealous since I live so far away, but they've got things like yoga, art, herb walks focusing on medicinal herbs of California, and on February 19th, they have their Family Bird Festival, which the website describes as a day outdoors with hands-on experiences, activities, and educational opportunities for young beginners and bird enthusiasts alike. It's only $10 for adults, $4 for kids, and free with general admission to the Botanic Garden. It is very hard for me to think of things that are a better deal than that. And if you're in the mood for generosity, I make this podcast completely independently, which means a lot of hours doing things like editing audio, researching both topics and guests, promoting the show, sending emails to coordinate interviews, going out into the field for interviews themselves, and finally putting it all together into what you hear in each episode. Each hour of podcast represents about 40 hours of work behind the scenes. 
There are also expenses that go along with both travel and producing audio content. It's all work that I'm so grateful to be able to do, but support helps a lot. The best way to donate to the show is to become a monthly supporter on Patreon for as little as $4 a month, which also gives you access to all kinds of video and audio extras and more. Patrons who donate $12 a month or more also get a tiny little gift each season, and I just figured out what the season two gift is going to be, which I'm so excited about. It would be so appreciated if you could visit www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner to learn more. That's patreon.com. Michelle is with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Another great way to help out is by sharing this or any episode with a friend, family member, Facebook group, subreddit, or anywhere there might be people who are interested in California ecology. And if you listen to the very end, I always include some bit of drama or reflection or embarrassment from my week. And last night, I went to the Christmas party for my husband's work, which was amazing because nurses are a lot of fun. And I got this cocktail that was so good. And it had these beautiful little sprigs of fennel in it. And of course, I wasn't paying attention while taking sips because I was having too much fun talking. And I kept getting fennel stuck in my teeth, which by the way, fennel is invasive in California. So don't hesitate to put copious amounts of it in your cocktails as well but apparently it can be the host plant for the native anise swallowtail butterfly. So maybe like check for chrysalises before you cut it down. I don't know. Anyway, thank you for being here and for listening to the entire episode. I appreciate every single person here for how much you care about this earth we all live on. Have such a good holiday season, whatever you celebrate. I hope you get some rest and some time with loved ones, and I'll see you back in January on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.